our website, birdnote.org. Treat yourself to trogons and hummingbirds like these black-tinned hummingbirds. KPFT Houston. into the new capital show with guest host Wally James. This is KPFT in Houston. And yes, I'm Wally James. I'm sitting in for Leo Gold today. Uh, Leo had to go out of town. He will be back next week. Uh, I'm host of the Progressive Forum, normally heard on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. And we're preempted for the convention curvage, so I'm here a little bit early today. Uh, I want to uh, let you know what's going to be going on in today's show. We're going to start out this evening. Uh, we're going to be talking to... Uh, Elizabeth Snyder, and she is a professor at Cornell University, a professor uh, of government. And her latest article is uh, what we should be talking about, Romney's Foreign Policy Advisors. And then after that, we're going to be talking to Jordan Flaherty. And he is author of the book uh, Floodlines, Community and Resistance from Katrina to uh, the Genus 6. And then we're going to wrap it up this uh, with... Uh, satirical singer-songwriter Roy Zimmerman, and uh, he's going to be talking to us from Tampa, Florida, from the convention. So let's go ahead and get things started off. Elizabeth uh, Snyder is a professor of government at Cornell University and author of Roots Reform and um, the forthcoming book, Presidents, War, and Reform. She uh, and as I said, her most recent piece is what we should be talking about is Ronnie's foreign policy. Elizabeth, welcome to the rest, uh, <laughs> welcome to the new uh, Capital Show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you. So, uh, why you know why do you think that? Uh, we should uh, be talking about uh, Romney's foreign policy. This isn't something that's been getting a lot of play. No, it hasn't, uh, which is a bit strange. Uh, you know, in the in two thousand eight, 
Bush had a foreign policy advice team, and a few people paid me attention because we knew that Condoleezza Rice was on that team and a few other people. But we, I, I think the media and even political scientists just didn't pay that much attention. But we know now that they had plans uh, and that they endorsed a, a very ambitious vision of American foreign policy that uh, would involve uh, numerous wars and a very large military presence and occupation uh, of other countries and so on. I think it behooves us now to pay more attention to foreign policy advisors. And what one notes is that Romney's foreign policy advisors are pretty much that same set of people. Uh, uh, most of them were in the Bush administration or the Reagan administration uh, or this, you know, supporting think tanks uh, like Heritage and, and AEI and Project for a New American Century. So we've got the same, the same people coming back, uh, the same mindset. And if you read their readings, uh, the, their writings, the academics uh, who are uh, in the group, they, uh, they do subscribe to uh, a very aggressive foreign policy that ought to be fairly controversial. But again, we're, we're not talking about it. We're talking about exclusively about domestic policy. And that's, of course, terribly important. But the two do intersect because we're spending an enormous amount of money uh, on military policy and the wars that the uh, Bush advisors uh, urged on the president and perhaps didn't take too much urging, but uh, those have turned out to be extremely expensive. They're, in fact, the main source of our debt, uh, in addition to the unemployment caused by the crash of the housing bubble in Wall Street. Um, so I think it behooves us to talk about what they have in mind for us and uh, whether it's going to be possible to make any cuts in the military budget. If we don't, it's going to be very hard to close the, the budget gap, to, to pay down the debt uh, without, some, uh, without a lot of suffering, frankly, inside the country. You start off your interview with a, I mean, uh, your article with a quote from John Kennedy: uh, "Domestic policy can hurt us; foreign policy can kill us." And he was a cautious man in the end. <laughs> uh, he he found ways to to back out of crises, and apparently was uh, was planning uh, to get out of Vietnam as soon as the election was over. So. Yeah, I think that that kind of prudence, paying attention to the fact that foreign policy can kill us, it can kill Americans, and it can kill a lot of people in other countries, and not just kill them, but change the trajectory of their societies and uh, inflict lasting damage uh, on the ecology of the country, Vietnam being the worst example of that. But uh, So I, I think he was right in, in the implications of that statement. Well, and... Um Iraq is something that, uh, you know, it's still there. We, you know, we lost, the Iraqis lost so much more in the way of people and of their, uh, uh, their country, uh, out of that war. We are in Afghanistan right now. Obama seems to be slowly pulling out, but that's certainly, uh, going to be an ongoing conflict. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, and the, the repercussions will go on for a long time. Uh, neither, of, neither of those wars has really achieved its goal of, on the one hand of, of really getting rid of terrorism by getting rid of the, the original basis for terrorism. Um, and, and the other, in the case of Iraq, just, you know, getting rid of a bad guy who was a big threat to us. Certainly a bad guy, nobody disputes that, but was he a threat to us? Probably not. He did managed to hold together a country that uh, without him, without his very heavy hand, uh, has has really flown apart. And, and the end result is going to be probably a country that is much more religious, less secular, and much more strongly uh, allied with Iran, uh, thus increasing the power of Iran in the region. None of, none of those things were really, you know, the goals of the war in Iraq. So I... You know, I, I think generally we, we need to take a very close look at wars. I think the American public is very inclined to do that, but they're often sold uh, a bill of goods by presidents who, for whatever set of reasons, want to get into wars. Um, and I think, I, you know, people say that as people being international relations specialists, that, uh, that the Iraq war will go down as one of the greatest uh, mistakes in American foreign policy, uh, along with the Vietnam War, but perhaps... Uh, with more lasting 
repercussions and and the Afghanistan war is not going to go down as a success story it's hard to see how it would well and this is something you've got the right that uh, they really don't want to pull out of Afghanistan so uh, is there a potential that uh, if Obama loses that uh, we're going to see a much more prolonged conflict there I don't know. You know, if you look at the Republican base, they're not enthusiastic about the Afghanistan war. Pretty much, you know, the majorities of, of every group you can find uh, in the U.S. Uh, pretty much wants to get out of that one. So I think it would be hard for a Republican leader, even if so inclined, uh, to hang around in Afghanistan. You're just we're losing a lot of people. We're bleeding a lot. Uh, we, you know, as even Donald Rumsfeld said, <laughs> the, the question is whether we're creating more terrorists than we're killing, and and that's a big question that that still hangs over Afghanistan and whether whether that country and Pakistan, which is absorbed the people who left Afghanistan, um, and uh, who were terrorists, so you know how those two countries are going to recover. The other thing is, it's you know looking like there's pressure to uh have a war th- with uh iran and uh israel is really pushing towards that it is and and we learned from uh george w bush's memoirs that they were pushing him very hard to do the same thing in, in the last two years of his term one, one thing i i think i've sort of figured out in in studying war making decisions since World War II is that presidents do get more peaceful in the last two years. They think more about a different kind of legacy than winning wars. They don't feel the electoral pressure uh, to go to war and to be a, a you know an active commander in chief. And they often uh, undertake peace initiatives. You look at Reagan at the end of his term and uh, Clinton at the end of his term. Um, so Bush, uh, I didn't think he would go to war, thinking that my theory probably <laughs> had some plausibility. And uh, I knew he was being pressed to go to war with Iran by Dick Cheney and and uh, all the uh, you know the hawks in, in the administration among his advisors, but he didn't do it. Uh, the problem for Obama, of course, is that if if Israel makes a strike for the election, my guess is that if they think Obama's going to win or there's at least a 50-50 chance he'll win, uh, they're going to be very tempted to make the strike before the election because if Obama's reelected after the election, he won't be under the same kind of pressure. Uh, to do what Israel wants done with Iran. Uh, so I, I think the pressure is going to be very strong. If Israel attacks Iran, if Iran attacks back, who knows what Iran has in store um, and, and what they could do both you know, to us in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and to Israel, um, then we'll be drawn to another war right before the election, which is not what any president really wants to do. But there you go. Um, and, and it is a real worry. If Romney is elected, he's much more sympathetic to the idea of attacking Iran, and it might not even you know, take Israel doing it and the U.S. backing it up. It might be a joint effort. Who knows? It might be the first thing he'd do. Uh, this is, this is going to sound like a bunch of complicated theories, but at the beginning of conservative administrations and democracies around the world, you typically... Uh, get uh, an increase in unemployment. The economy uh, actually slows down a bit. That, that's certainly not what we're being promised. But, but the truth what happens. There's an emphasis on on debt and getting rid of any inflation that's around, and and uh, they're not going to stimulate the economy and so on. Uh, so it it often has a sort of deflationary uh, GDP slowing effect in the first two years of conservative administration, and that apparently increases the temptation to go to war as a distraction. At least we have a number of articles that argue that with, with some plausibility, and you can see it happening. So I would be more worried about a war with Romney, because if you look at his advisors, I mean, that's what they've said. They, they think we should go to war with Iran. They think we should have done it before. We should have done it in the Bush administration. So, you know, here's the here's third war before the first two are even concluded, and... Uh, I think that's a real worry. I think most political scientists, most especially IR uh, specialists, are very worried about war with Iran. And yet, we're not talking about it, which is an odd thing. Well, and it's something that seriously uh, we should be concerned about. I mean, uh, it's not Afghanistan. It, it could be a very serious conflict. It could be a very serious conflict. I mean, we we just don't know. I think you know the expectation uh, 
in Israel, if not so much in the U.S., uh, at least in the political side of Israel, you know, the, the generals in Israel don't want to do it. It's Netanyahu who wants to do it. It's, uh, again, and, you know, maybe has his own political reasons for doing this, but he wants to attack uh, the, the head of the... Uh, uh, you know, security uh, intelligence apparatuses uh, don't want to do this, uh, and they've discouraged it. And the U.S. military, I don't believe, really wants to do this at all. They're too tied up in, in the other two wars. Uh, but if Netanyahu orders it, which he has the power to do, uh, then, you know, there we are. Do we go in and back up Israel if things go badly? Uh, Obama's kind of said he would. I've got your back, he said. And uh, he'll, you know, he'll be pushed very hard by the Republicans to do that. Um, what do we know about these advisors? You write in your article that uh, one has been accused of war crimes in Lebanon. Another one advocates the El Salvador solution. Talk a little bit about that. Um, Elliot Cohen, who advocates the El Salvador solution, was, uh, had, had a pretty high position uh, on the National Security Council and Bush administration. He's a, a professor of, of uh, considerable renown and, and distinction, and uh, he, he's very hawkish. Um, and what he has said is that uh, we have learned that insurgencies are difficult to manage, and so uh, when possible, we should try to do them through surrogates. He feels that what the Reagan administration did in Central America was a very good idea. So uh, he hasn't overtly defended the Contras, but that was that was a part of that idea of having surrogates. So you hire an army to go in and overthrow a government you don't like. Or if you've got a right-wing government uh, that's facing an insurgency, as El Salvador was under Dobison, who was a, a really... Uh, sketchy right-wing guy, um, and, and you had a leftist insurgency. The way to deal with that is to give them lots and lots of military aid, and that tends to filter out from the mili- from the recipient military to death squads, and that's what you got in El Salvador. So lots and lots of people killed. You might remember the four American nuns who were killed by uh, actually people affiliated with the El Salvador military. Um, so it, it, a pretty nasty business, and, and El Salvador and Guatemala uh, have not really been able to get their acts together since then. Of course, we overthrew the democratic government of Guatemala in 1954. Um, so, you know, the, the effect on other countries, and I think Americans do care about that if they know about it, uh, it could, could be pretty bad. Uh, it'll still mean that, you know, we'll, we'll be intervening in the affairs and in the, evolution, the political evolution of other societies, but we'll just try to do it in a more covert way, and the public won't know about it, American soldiers won't be killed to any great extent. So that's the El Salvador solution, and that, that's what uh, one of, the, really the top academic advisor of, uh, of, Romney, um, of the Romney advocates. Um, other people there, uh, Lehman was a secretary of the Navy under Reagan, and also a neoconservative sign, signer. A lot of those people, if you look at the table in that article, were affiliated with PNAC, which you know, essentially a plan for an American uh, empire uh, that would not be challenged, could not be challenged by any other power. Uh, we have a large presence around the world. Uh, Lehman uh, has sold Romney on the idea that we need a, an even bigger navy and more bases for the navy around the world. Um, so, you know, pretty much it, it, they're really all on the same page. There are no doves on that list. Um, there, there are some, I think the sketchiest character is Walid Faris, who uh, was accused of war crimes in, in Lebanon, uh, heading a, um, a Christian militia affiliated with uh, the Israelis who massacred Palestinians in refugee camps. Um, he also has sponsored a lot of very virulently anti-Muslim films, uh, such as the one showed to the uh, New York Police Department and, and other places. So, I mean, he's, a, he's he's sort of on the fringe there, and it's kind of surprising to see him listed as a prominent, you know, one of 25 or so uh, foreign policy advisors. I think most of the articles uh, that I've linked to in that article are, are really surprised to see Wally Farris there. I mean, you don't see people like that prominently displayed very often. John Bolton uh, has a protege uh, uh, who, who might his role at the United Nations. It's essentially, you know, the same cast of characters and the same think tanks that we had in the Bush administration. Some of them 
earlier in the Reagan administration. So there's no reason to expect anything but a very similar foreign policy. And I think Romney, like Bush, has no experience in foreign policy and would be even easier for strong-willed, very you know, intellectual advisors uh, very experienced people like you know, like Lehman, the former Secretary of the Navy, to persuade. That's the danger of having a president without foreign policy experience. I think, you know, harking back to that Kennedy quote, Kennedy did know something about the world. Um, he traveled a lot, and he had even written a senior thesis on uh, you know international politics. He cared a lot about it. He was pretty knowledgeable about it, and. And so he acted more prudently, and when he had, was in situations like Berlin crisis or Cuban Missile crisis, and his foreign policy advisors wanted him to just, you know, nuke them, um, he didn't do that. And, and he felt enough confidence in his own judgment and his own knowledge of the lay of the land that he could make what turned out to be the right and the prudent decision in those cases. But you worry more about an inexperienced president who's just kind of hook, line, and sinker already been... Um, co-opted uh, without apparently any any reservations uh, into the worldview of these advisors. Elizabeth, I know you've got an, uh, an appointment that you need to go to, but uh, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, where can people go to find this article? At the Cornell International Affairs Review website. Uh, the, the whole journal from that last issue is there, and mine starts on page 20. You have to just page through uh, by, you know, clicking on the arrow, and uh, and it's there. And, and all the it's pretty well documented if you want to. I think the links are active, so you can go to the original articles, the biographies of the people mentioned, and so on. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Wally. All right, we've been talking to Elizabeth Sanders. She's a uh, professor of government at Cornell University. Up next, we have uh, Jordan Flaherty. But uh, real quick, we're going to go to uh, commentary by Matt Rothschild and be right back. I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of the Progressive Magazine, with my progressive point of view, which you can also grab off our website over at progressive.org. It'll take more than Ann Romney to humanize her husband and to win women over to the Republican side. She gave it her best on Tuesday night, but it was all a little much, wasn't it? The worshipful wife praising Mitt's nervousness when they first met. Get it? He's still nervous and awkward, and that's okay. We're supposed to fall in love with him just like she did. Then there was her account of their first years together playing poor. And then her long pan to all the mothers out there who keep their families in this country together, working harder, worrying harder, caring more than all you fathers out there. This lunge for the mother vote is destined to fail, however. Moms realize that if they get pregnant with another child they can't afford or if that pregnancy threatens their life, they'll need to get an abortion that Republicans want to ban. Moms realize that if their daughters get raped, that they won't want Paul Ryan there telling their daughters they shouldn't be allowed to get that abortion. Ann Romney can vouch for Mitt as a husband and as a father all she wants, but he's not running to be the husband or the father of the United States. He's running for president, and that's a whole different job description. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. All right, commentary by Matt Rothschild, and we play those on a regular basis on the Progressive Forum, uh, Thursdays at 7. Uh, but this is uh, the New Capital Show. I'm Molly James, sitting in for Leo, and our next guest is uh, Jordan Flaherty. And Jordan is a journalist, a staff writer with the Louisiana Justice Institute. And uh, he was the first one uh, to bring attention to the Genus 6 uh, with his writing. And uh, he has a his book is Floodlines: Community Resistance uh, from Katrina to the Genus Six. Uh, Jordan, welcome. Uh, glad to have you on the show. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. And uh, let's start off. Uh, well, just um, how is? Uh, and I realize that you're not in New Orleans right now, but as far as you know, how are they uh, faring from the most recent storm? Well, yeah, I mean, New Orleans is definitely my home, and, and uh, I've been keeping in, in touch with folks there. And You know, I think um, there's definitely been people who have had uh, damage to their homes, damage to their vehicles, and a lot of people don't have electricity. But really, I think the people that have it the worst are, are the folks in the surrounding areas outside New Orleans, um, especially Plaquemines, Paris, faced a very serious 
uh, flooding. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, it's, it, it's a, a lot of that can really be traced to the lack of, of barrier land and barrier islands that the Louisiana Gulf Coast has. Um, you know, Louisiana has lost about a, a football field of land every 45 minutes and continues to lose that. Um, due mostly to the effect of uh, oil company drilling that's happened on the Louisiana coast. So, you know, part of why this area is so specifically vulnerable to storms is the result of uh, this corporate profiteering that happened and, and very little of the, the profit from that made it to the people that were really affected and, and damaged and had their livelihoods put in danger because of that uh, oil company activity. Well, and... and- you know, that's something that doesn't get a lot of reporting, but certainly has a, a large effect on the people that live there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You, you, you would think that with the BP drilling disaster, maybe that would wake up some politicians and, and get them to uh, to maybe challenge the political dominance that the oil companies have. But uh, really quite the opposite has been the case, unfortunately. Okay, well, it's been seven years since uh, Katrina hit. And um, you write that this that New Orleans has become a, a national laboratory uh, for government re- government reform. Uh, what are you referring to? Well, you know, almost every system in, in the city. If you look at education, housing, criminal justice, uh, they've become the kind of ground zero for these changes. You know, if, if you look at education, for example. Right after the storm, the entire staff of the public school system was fired. 7,500 uh, teachers, janitors, lunchroom workers, everyone. Uh, and the school system pre-Katrina had 128 schools. 124 of them were under control of the school board and therefore some form of, sort of, of, uh, form of local elected government control. Now there's five schools under control of the local school board, and the rest are either charter or under state control, mostly in the process of becoming charter. So you, you had the the, uh, the teachers' union no longer exists, the teachers were fired, and the school board no longer has control of the schools. So you had this uh, a lot of reforms, and along with those reforms, in fact, really central to those reforms, was also taking away any sort of local control of the school system, whether local control in terms of the school board or local control even in the sense of local teachers teaching the kids. You know, now we had programs like Teach for America and other programs that brought these young, often idealistic teachers from the Northeast to uh, to take over teaching of the kids. And, you know, you, you can argue that there's been both positives and negatives from these changes in the school system, but it's created a lot of anger locally because people really feel, you know, parents of the kids in the school system feel that control of the school system has been taken away from their control and that they no longer have a say. Well, and that's something that I think uh, most parents would be concerned about. Uh Something else that you focus on is the police department there. Uh, you want to talk about that? Well, absolutely. I think that this is a, a, a really, um, really interesting and important issue. You know, um, we have a long history of problems with the, the police department in New Orleans. If you uh, go back to the 90s, and of course you can go back further and, and see even worse, but in the 90s we almost had... Uh, federal control over the department. At that time, we had um, one officer that uh, the, the FBI caught um, ordering a hit um, against a, a civilian who had complained against uh, police brutality. She was assassinated by uh, this police officer who ordered the assassination. Um, you had uh, another officer who was committing a robbery and, and killed several civilians. Uh, you know, both those officers were, were later convicted, but you had widespread corruption in the department. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we had another real upsurge in that after Katrina, or another way to put it is Katrina really helped shine a light on an extremely dysfunctional department. So in the days after Katrina, you had, uh, for example, Henry Glover, um, unarmed African-American young man who was walking through the West Bank neighborhood and was shot by a police officer sniper, and other officers took his body and, and burned it behind a levee. Uh, you had... Um, the next day, Danny Brumfield Sr., an uh, African-American grandfather who was uh, outside the convention center with his family, um, when he ran to a police car to ask for help because uh, nobody had any food or water, uh, they hit him with the police car and then shot him in the back with a shotgun. The next day on Damsker Bridge, 
a group of unarmed African-American civilians were attempting to cross the, the bridge, and a group of officers came on them, and because they were black and because they were still in the city, these officers assumed that they were looters, and they began firing on them indiscriminately, killing James Brissett, a 16-year-old um, African-American youth who was described by friends as nerdy and studious, um, Ronald Madison, a, a mentally challenged 40-year-old with a, with the mind of an 8-year-old. Um, they, uh, they also grievously wounded several other people, like Jose Holmes, who was a, another young man who was there who required a colostomy bag because of his injuries. Um, uh, Leticia Bartholomew and her mother Susan Bartholomew were wounded badly. They were cowering at the side of the bridge and officers stood over them and fired, uh, fired bullets directly into them. Um, uh, Susan's daughter was who's 16 years old, was trying to climb on top of her and, to, and shield her body with her own, and both of them were shot by officers. So, you know, you have this massive and, and brutal and, and horrifying history of police violence. And over the last three years, um, you had the federal government in negotiations with the police department on uh, what's called a federal consent decree that will dictate changes in the department. Uh, the problem is community activists have been completely cut out of these discussions uh and really because of the city not so much because of the feds is, is the report that we're hearing and uh and you know they complain that this agreement does not offer the kind of community oversight that that they call for and you know not only community activism been cut out but even the city's independent police monitor which is you know an official uh city office has been left out of the negotiations and left out of the uh the consent agreement well and you know with the history uh, that they have, you can see where the community would clearly be concerned. Uh, where do you see this going? Well, you know, right now it's it's a very divided city. Um, you know, I think that these reforms have divided new residents against old residents, black against white, rich against poor. Um, you know, I think some people who have moved to the city in, in the last few years, they identify the city as a blank slate. They... Um, they are, you know, they feel like they're doing really important work. They're often very idealistic, often individually good people who, um, you know, believe that they're doing the best. But the problem is, uh, you know, they don't believe in any sort of accountability to community. Um, as poet and educator uh, in New Orleans resident Kalamaya Salam has said, it's not a blank slate, it's a cemetery. And they're, uh, you know, doing these experiments over people's bodies. And that's the feeling of a lot of people in New Orleans, that they're being experimented on uh, without their consent. So, you know, I, I think these struggles are, are going to continue, and people in New Orleans are going to continue to fight for control over the destiny of their city. After the uh, after Katrina hit, there were oh, large areas that were just wiped out. Uh, how has the rebuilding uh, been coming along? You know, if you look at education, if you look at housing, and if you look at rebuilding, in all these, it's almost a survival of the fittest uh, recovery. So those areas that were the least damaged in, in many ways have gotten the most support, and those uh, that, that were the most damaged and, and also had the most poverty to begin with had the least support. So, you know, areas like the Lower Ninth Ward, which ironically was sort of the poster child for, you know, what Katrina revealed about New Orleans and about unequal uh, treatment of, of survivors and um, about in, injustice and, and about people being left behind, that area is still left behind. You know, in the area, especially right by where the levee broke, um, you know, it's, it's maybe 20% of people that are, that are back. Um, and if, if you knew what that area looked like pre-Katrina and you look at it now, you wouldn't even recognize it. It went from a densely populated urban area to it looks almost rural. There's, you know, blocks of just uh, um, that have been reclaimed by nature, uh, overgrown uh, plant life. And, uh, you know, people have observed animal life that they haven't observed in the city in generations that are, are coming in out of the swamps. So, um, you know, it, it, it's amazing how this area has still been left behind. And some of the only houses that are in, in that area by the levee were built for local residents by Brad Pitt, who, uh, through his Make It Right project, has, has done, a, you know, I think actually a fairly good job. But it, it really highlights why was the federal government and state government not helping people rebuild. 
Well, and the federal government really fell down on the job uh, after Katrina. So slow to respond and has done so little. Why do you think that still they aren't doing that much? You know, it's it, it, it's complicated. I think, um, you know, it, it, I, I often feel like in New Orleans in those years after Katrina, it sometimes felt like the sky was filled with money. You know, there was billions of dollars that were allocated for for Katrina relief from the federal government, actually also from people giving to charity, whether it was Red Cross or or uh, any any of a number of other funds. Um, but so little of that money made it to the city. Um, you know, it was like the, the money was flying over our heads, but then it was immediately redirected into the pockets of Halliburton or Kellogg, Brown and Root or Blackwater, these Bush cronies that profiteered off of it. Aspirate is another uh, Republican company that made a lot of money off of post-Katrina rebuilding um, and very low of that when locally. Um, you know, they uh, the Bush administration waived the rules for minority contractors to have a, a role, and as a result, I think um, something like uh, 5% of, of the rebuilding was done by people or companies based on the Gulf Coast. Um, meanwhile, if, uh, you know, if you look at these nonprofits, again, a lot of people from East Coast and West Coast nonprofits made money off of this, these rebuildings, while, uh, uh, people locally often did not see that money. And now I think, you know, there's this attitude from, I think the Obama administration does want to help with rebuilding, but I think there's also this attitude that New Orleans has already gotten the money that they need. And, and I think that many in the Obama administration uh, are open to this idea of the city as a blank slate. I think they're very supportive of programs like Teach for America and, uh, and don't feel uh, that this idea of community accountability is important. We've got a few minutes left. Uh, what would you like to uh, talk about in the time that we have? You know, I think often, you know, when we talk about these injustices from New Orleans, I, I think what is what we forget to talk about is what an amazing place New Orleans is. And, and I think people often, you know, just hear about all these problems and they say, oh, I never want to go to New Orleans. But, you know, the reason New Orleans should be saved is, is because it's, it's, I mean, everywhere where it should be saved, but New Orleans is, is such an incredible place, you know, and it's it's a city with this long history of, um, of incredible culture that's given to the rest of the U.S., whether you talk about um, jazz, you know, a whole style of music, whether you talk about... Um, the idea of Mardi Gras and jazz funerals and social aid and pleasure clubs and Mardi Gras Indians, which are a tribute from the African-American community to the Native American community for the support uh, uh, Native Americans gave African-Americans during the time of slavery. Um, so all these incredible cultural traditions that New Orleans has given to the U.S. Um, you know, and, and, of course, economically, New Orleans is a major uh, gas and oil port. I think about 30 to 40 percent of the oil and natural gas in the U.S. comes from New Orleans. A similar percentage of domestic fishing comes from that port. So there's been such a huge cultural and economic benefit to the U.S. from New Orleans. So when we say New Orleans deserves rebuilding, it's not people asking for handouts, people who have been cut out from all this, the, uh, any sort of financial reward for the benefit that they've given to the U.S., um, and, you know, New Orleans has this, because of its different history of, of colonialism, uh, that you had a free community of Africans in New Orleans in the 1730s, lends the city this very different culture, um, this sort of African-Caribbean culture of the city. And this culture uh, of, of, of music um, and of, uh, has always been intertwined with, uh, with resistance. It's always been a culture of resistance and maintaining these unique cultural traditions have been a form of resistance against a, a dominant white supremacist culture of this country. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a very political place, but it's also a beautiful place. It's a place of, of, of pleasure and ecstasy. It's a, it's, it's a very queer place in many ways of where boundaries around um, gender and many other boundaries kind of break away in New Orleans. And I think it's a precious and, and beautiful place. And, and I, I think people from around the country should experience it. And I think they should also respect um, the people locally and, 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 and lend their support to people locally having control over their city and their destiny. Jordan, thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's, it's really a pleasure. And if people want more information, they can go to uh, floodlines.org. Um, 
which uh, has contact information for me and information um, about my uh, about community organizing in New Orleans and, and also links to organizations that work in New Orleans that they can support. Thank you. Thanks. We've been talking to Jordan Flaherty. He's a journalist and staff writer for the Louisiana Justice Institute, and his book is Floodlines, Community and Resistance from Katrina to the Gina Six. All right, our next guest is going to be Roy Zimmerman, singer, uh, satirical singer-songwriter. And we're going to start off with a brand-new song by Roy and uh, titled Mitts America. And uh, Roy's going to be reporting from Tampa, Florida. Offshore drilling is completely safe. You're getting sleepy Tax cuts for the rich create new jobs uh, Yeah, that wasn't what I wanted to start with. Can you play the other song? Uh, well, I want to go out with this song. Uh, it's it's the second track on that CD that had the commentary on it. Uh, you got that? Okay, let's go with that. Mitt Romney loves the song America the Beautiful. You knew that, of course, but what you may not have known is that Mitt Romney is actually a very talented lyricist. I'm not concerned, I'm not concerned about the very poor. That's just the bitter politics of envy. people who provide services to me. I'm running for office for Pete's sake. I can't have illegals. I think it's fine to talk about those things in quiet rooms. This feels good being back in Michigan. The trees are the right height. Our corporations, people, well, of course they are my friends. I think of corporations as my friends with dividends. I pay 13 point something percent. My income is unearned. And poverty's a problem, but again, I'm not NASCAR team owners. I got started right this morning with a biscuit and some cheesy grits. Even if you have a child two years of age, you need to go to work. I want the individuals to have the dignity of work. Take a shot. Go for it. Borrow some money if you have to from your parents. America, America, God shed his grace on me. That's Roy Zimmerman, satirical singer-songwriter. And Roy is on a 50-state tour, uh, has him in uh, Florida right now with the convention. And uh, Roy's latest CD is You Are Getting Sleepy. Roy, welcome back to KPFT. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, I mean, this this uh, cut, this is something that you uh, just recorded very recently, and it's got some really recent uh, quotes on there. 
Yeah, I, uh, I just recorded it in my motel room, you know, because that's, uh, that's the glamorous life. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice. It's, it's uh, really on top of what's going on. So you're there uh, with, at the convention. What are you seeing going on around you? Well, you know, it, it's, it, it's these, these conventions are always amazing, kind of just for the conglomeration of people that they attract, not just the delegates, of course, who are, who are funny and of, of themselves, but all, all of the protest activity and so forth, too, then, too. Right now, at, right across the street from me right now, there's a, there's a, 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 a duo, a Japanese film duo that's, that's filming this kind of hokey-looking <laughs> TV broadcast. It's kind of amusing to watch them, too. But, you know, it brings everybody together. That's the thing. Every, you know, I look at all these delegates and I go, okay, they're Republicans, but we're all people. And we all, you know, we all smell like sweat and uh, sunblock and deet and uh, mildew. And, you know, right? We're, we're all together in this thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it has uh, kind of a leveling, uh, the heat does, has a, a leveling uh, uh, effect on people. But, uh, yeah. Uh, it, but there is a difference there. You've got the people uh, that behind all the barricades and everything that are inside, and then you've got uh, protesters who are outside in, in their free speech zone, uh, which you know seems to be <laughs> kind of a you know here we have a constitution that gives us free speech, but uh, things have been changed so that it's it's over in a corner somewhere. Yes, the uh, behind behind the cyclone curtain. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Generously provided by Halliburton. That's a nice little rhyme. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, 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 I wonder about the efficacy of, uh, you know, if the, the protests, you know, uh, you're all, you always wonder about that. You always wonder if your protest is having an effect, you know, and uh, it's very difficult to reach the delegates themselves. That's the thing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's more important, I think, to reach the, uh, the, the media and, and, you know, and more importantly, the blogosphere these days, you know. To have, to have a, a say of some kind. And what do you see there with the protesters? Uh, are they? Do you think they're having an effect? What's going on? There's, you know, there there is the the, the typical um, the, uh, kind of uh, uh, amalgam of protesters. I'll say there's this, there's, there's a place they call Romneyville that you may have heard about. Then too, you know, that, that set up camp about a week before the convention. And it's um, it's made up of, of a lot of the Occupy people, um, but other people have kind of uh, gravitated toward it then too. So there are a lot of messages being disseminated there. But again, you got to go there to hear them. That's the thing. It's, it's almost like a protest area in that sense. Um, and uh, you know, th this convention more than ever is being driven by uh, by Twitter and uh, and you know and by YouTube, I guess to a certain degree then too. You know where. Where things can go up instantly and reach so many more people than than uh, than you know one band of people on a corner with a sign or something, you know. What do you make of uh, the candidates? Any thoughts on any of them? Well, it's you know I think it was it's cute how they try to anthropomorphize Mitt Romney. Uh, he's you know I've I begun to feel sorry for him almost as if he was human uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you know he's. They, they, the criticism that's leveled against Mitt Romney is that he's not genuine, right? And I think that's not fair because he is genuinely fake. <laughs> he he's not faking that, you know. So he's not just fake in front of the NAACP and fake in front of the CPAC. So he goes home and he's fake. That's who he is. I think we should give him a break that way. <laughs> You know, that was Ann Romney's job uh, the other night uh, with her speech, was to kind of humanize him. I think you're in trouble if you have to humanize your candidate. That's something about where they started. But, but uh, you know, and she did a, a lovely speech, and she's a lovely lady, and so forth then, too. And they cut away to their lovely children in the front row, and they were um, tweezing their nose hairs. I thought that was a little weird. But... Uh, but otherwise, you know, it's it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a lovely family and a lovely pageant. That's that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, and she talked about love. You, you, did you hear it at all? Did you hear her speech at all? Just a little bit of it. Okay, well, she was saying, I'm going to tell you a love story. And that was her idea, you know, of, of humanizing him and so forth, and right? And then Chris Christie came out and, you know, and almost, you know, almost immediately just took the love, sucked the love out of the room. <laughs> you know, he was like, uh, he was like uh, you know, it's not about love, it's about respect. And, uh, you know, every, you know, every third frame that you, you would have shot a video would be of him snarling. 
Yeah, it, uh, it really, <laughs> really makes you wonder, you know, what the message is, you know. Uh, yeah, it, I'm not sure they know. That's the thing that's confusing to me about it, because the Republicans are supposed to be the clamp-down kind of people. You know, they're supposed to have control over it all. And to my ear, anyway, there is no discernible uh, theme to these nights. It's, you know, it's a speech, then it's a speech, and one speech is more effective than another or whatever, but there's no, you know, they, they try to they try to get like, you know, uh, we can do better. That was last night's kind of theme. We can do better. Which is almost like admitting to the world, you know, yeah, this is a crappy convention, but we can do, you know, right? <laughs> That's what I got from that. Um, but there's this whole thing about we built it. You're right. You're tuning into that kind of theme they're, they're putting out there. We built it. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, that's in direct opposition to Obama's assertion that this is a community effort, that all that we do is, you know, that is, is a, is a communal effort. And that, that's, uh, that's government's, part of government's job and so forth then too. That's a message that resonates, I think, with me anyway, and, you know, with a lot of people I know. So they're going in direct opposition that we built it, you know, government didn't build it. And every person, to a person who gets up there and tells their, their life story that says, you know, my mother took three buses to get to her job. Well, you know, the buses were run by the city, right? You know, my dad went to school on the GI Bill. You know, it's like I'm hearing bells going ding, ding, ding. <laughs> you know, these are all communal efforts you're talking about. And people seem to see people seem to be uh, totally unaware of that. I mean, this is something that you know they're trying to actually run against that government is the problem, and yet so many of these people you know wouldn't be where they are today if it wasn't for help from the government. Yeah, yeah. It's only you know anybody who kind of protests against government help, it's almost like you know the the, the search is on instantly. The fact checkers are are. Are, uh, are looking into their past to see when they've received a government handout. And it's, uh, you know, it's inevitable. 20 minutes later, they say, oh, oh yeah, this person, uh, you know, took, took millions from a government handout. We, uh, well, I hear that you're going to be coming back to Houston in February. And uh, as this part of your, uh, I guess your 50-state tour is going to be over by then. But, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh uh, we just got a, a couple of minutes here. Uh, go ahead and uh, leave us with a closing thought and let people know uh, where they can uh, find out about you online. Well, the 50-state tour, as, as it is, is kind of over right now because I've hit 49. I've hit the continental 49 states. And, uh, you know, for Hawaii, I just have to say, omission accomplished. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, there are only 50 states, so i got to start again. So, yeah, i got to come back to Texas in uh, in March. One thing that I'm doing is, is on, on this song called Vote Republican, which I hope you're about to play. I think that's the one you've got queued up there. It um, is the one. In, yeah. In every state that, uh, that my wife and I visit, we write a new verse uh, to, this, to this song. And so the, these videos are going up on YouTube one at a time in rapid succession now. And you can go to YouTube and check out. The one from Texas is great. I, you know, uh, I, uh, I did it on the UT campus uh, there in Austin. And... Um, and each, you know, each state features another little absurdity that uh, that has cropped up in the political race. And the website is RoyZimmerman.com. And, Roy, I really appreciate you taking this time to be with us. Uh, anything else you want to say before we let you go? Well, thank you so much, Wally, for, ha- for having me on. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I, I would encourage uh, any, any of your listeners who are giving up on voting, giving up on the system. I know that's a, that's a common thread among lefties, you know, is like, you know, what's the difference or there's no difference between the parties. I would encourage you to get involved and, and, and jump on the back of that democratic beast and steer it to the left. That's my, my little soapbox moment. <laughs> well, Roy. Thanks again for being with us. I do appreciate it. And we're going to go out with, uh, well, uh, the title of the new CD is You're Getting Sleepy, and uh, which is a tie-in to the song uh, Vote Republican. Thanks, Thank Wally. All right. Thank you. Offshore drilling is completely safe. You're getting sleepy. Tax cuts for the rich create new jobs. You're getting sleepy. Financial corporations will police themselves. And
and illegal aliens are stealing all your pens. Now when I count to three and snap my fingers, you will awake refreshed and vote Republican. White people are the real victims of racism. You're getting sleepy. Fox News is fair and balanced. Sleepy. Healthcare is a privilege and not a right. We can work together to wipe out the middle class. Now when I count to three and snap my fingers, you'll awake confused and vote Republican. Saying Barack Obama is a foreign-born Islamist puppy eater. I'm not saying that. I'm saying you decide. There's no evidence to suggest that Nancy Pelosi is a thousand-year-old Nazi vampire. But that's what I heard. Somebody said that it was me. Democrats want to put you in a re-education camp and kill your grandma and bring Stalin back to life. Now when I count to three and snap my feet, Republican. Mitt Romney is a regular guy, so sleepy. Sarah Palin is a real anything. Ronald Reagan, sleepy, sleepy. So when I turn the Washington Mall into a private cutting ring, you'll vote Republican. And when I turn Social Security over to a bunch of drunken day traders, you'll vote and when I drag the nation through eight years of carnage and incompetence and leave the place a bigger mess than Lindsay Lowen's trailer, then blame the Democrats for cleaning up too slow. You will awake confused, refreshed, somewhat paranoid, and you'll remember nothing. And vote Republican. You're getting sleepy. Republican and somewhat sheepy Republican Lullaby And that was Roy Zimmerman from his CD uh, You're Getting Sleepy uh, I hope you're not too sleepy. Stay awake out there on the roads. Uh, I'm Wally James, host of the Progressive Forum. Normally heard on Thursday nights here on KPFT at 7 o'clock. And we're preempted this week and next week for the conventions. Thank you to Leo Gold for letting me come in this week and sitting in for him. And Leo will be back next week. So uh, please stay tuned to KPFT and uh, we will see you next week. Or Leo will see you next week. Have a good weekend. It's election time here at KPFT, and we're looking for a few good men and women. Still on the fence as to whether or not you want to run for a seat on the local station board? Think of the many ways in which music programming here at KPFT has enriched your life. What other station plays music from every decade? How many times have we turned you on to a new artist or even a totally different style of music? Great music requires great programs, and great programs require great programmers. After all, it is about the people, and we have some award-winning programmers here at KPFT. We are doing everything we can to give you the best listening experience possible. As a member of the board, you will work to ensure that KPFT remains a valuable resource to the Houston music community and to all music-loving people. So don't delay. Register online at kpft.org. This announcement was brought to you by KPFT Houston.
Listeners support KPFT in many different ways. Some write checks and others use credit cards, but if you're spinning your wheels looking for a tax deduction, think about donating your working but unwanted car, motorcycle, boat, or truck to KPFT. You'll qualify for a tax deduction and, at the same time, take care of unfinished business. To make a donation, call our toll-free vehicle donation hotline at 877-308-2408. We'll arrange for your vehicle to be picked up and the title transferred. Then we'll send you a receipt for your tax deduction. It's really that simple to support the station you have come to rely on for music, news, and public affairs programs. Again, for more information or to make a donation, call our toll-free vehicle donation hotline at 877-308-2408. You are tuned in to commercial-free, listener-sponsored Pacifica Radio, KPFT Houston.